Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I don't understand, Gavin, how y'all are bitching about the heat. You, like, colonized every hot place on the planet. Yes. The following podcast contains... She said that this show is naughty and might make you a potty mouth. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you believed a moron like David Berkowitz could be the mastermind behind the Summer of Sam, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 371. The dog's name was Harvey, edition of the show, and it's part two of the Summer of Sam. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by David's Doggy Daycare, where dogs are in charge. Do you love your pet? Sure, we all do. So why should your muggum spend all day being told what to do? At David's Doggy Daycare, when your dog speaks, we listen. Whether it's giving him yummies or going on a serial murder spree, we do what your dog says. Never worry about what your dog is doing because your dog is doing whatever it wants, and we are doing what your dog is telling us to do. David's Doggy Daycare, where the only commands that matter, be it time for walkies or order to kill, come from your dog. Floyd Calber, the news of the arrest of suspect David Berkowitz. Jane, the man's name is David Berkowitz. He is an unmarried 24-year-old postal worker. He's a veteran of Korean service with the United States Army. When he was arrested late last night in his apartment in Yonkers, New York, he told the officers, okay, you've got me. David Berkowitz is expected to be booked, as Jane mentioned, in Brooklyn this morning and formally accused of committing one of at least one of six murders in the New York area in just the past year. Specifically, they expect him to be booked for the murder of 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz on July the 31st. In the end, a parking ticket proved to be the undoing for Berkowitz. Here's Robert Hager with more of the story. You want to know a secret about cops? What a bunch of bastards. Yeah, that's true, but that's not a secret. No, I'm talking like about a peek behind the, the blue wall. That that kind of secret. Here it is. Cops, they don't like to work. I can hardly believe it. Now, I'm not all saying that all cops are lazy bastards that only break a sweat when they get their rocks off beating down an unarmed suspect. I would never say that because that's wrong. A lot of them don't even want to do that. If they give them their druthers, they'd much rather sit in their car with the AC on full blast, listening to some kind of sports program on the radio, or in these more modern times, I guess, watching pornography on a tablet or phone. Won't stop watching porn. But you see, the problem is, like everyone else, cops have bosses. Now, if you were to sit around the office all day watching porn instead of doing whatever it is you do in your office, your boss is going to have some issues with this kind of behavior because, you know, you're right there, he's right there, he's going to see. Are you watching porn? But you see, cops, no offices. I mean, unless you're like a detective or you've committed so many violations of an innocent person's civil rights that they've had to assign you to desk duty. So their bosses, 
can't be looking over their shoulders all the time to make sure they aren't rubbing one out in the cruiser. So, to get around this, they assign busy work to make sure the government gets their money's worth out of your average police officer. In a busy city or a precinct, that might mean an arrest quota, which every police department denies is a thing, but let me assure you, it is very true. But in most of America, there really isn't all that much to do. There's not that much crime. And if you just went around randomly arresting white people like you do people of color, then the white people would get all pissed off and blow up your great gig. So how do cop bosses assign busy works and how do cops prove to their bosses that they did something? I write traffic tickets. Exactly. When I was a cop, the only time I wrote tickets for any kind of vehicle violations was when I was getting shit from up top about being productive. So I go out, pull over some speeders, or drive around parking lots writing parking tickets for anything from parking violations to expired registration, which was super easy because 20-somethings are really bad at keeping their tags up to date, especially when they're up over the seas all the goddamn time. Was it petty bullshit? Abso-fucking-lutely. Did it keep bosses off my ass so that I could goof off the rest of the time without them bugging me? Also, absolutely. However, just maybe, who knows, that parking ticket that I just wrote could solve a string of serial murders that 300 detectives couldn't crack. Which brings us to this week's topic, part two of the Summer of Sam, the arrest trial, and maybe, just maybe, the truth. You can't handle the truth! When last we left Mr. Monster, he had broken his pattern and slipped into Brooklyn to shoot Stacy Moskowitz and rob a Violante. Moskowitz would die from her wounds and Violante would be blinded for the remainder of his life. And after this, this city shit its pants. Sam popping up in Brooklyn. Before this, residents of the other boroughs assumed they were safe. Now Brooklyn and Manhattan were in the crossfairs of the killer. No one was safe. Now, you notice I didn't mention Staten Island because <laughs> if you lived on Staten Island, you were still completely safe from Sam because no one, I mean no one, goes to Staten Island unless they absolutely have to. Not schlepping to Staten Island. At the same time, the clock on the days our killer had left on the streets was running out because when he went to Brooklyn, he made a fatal mistake. Well, there were actually two fatal mistakes. First of all, our boy Berkowitz parked his 1970 yellow Ford Galaxy in front of a fire hydrant. You'd never buy a 1970 Ford Galaxy just because the windshield wipers are three inches longer than its nearest competitors. That's a trifle. And you certainly wouldn't buy a new Ford for the 100% nylon carpeting, though the other fellows only got 20%, a trifle. Or because the Galaxy has more rear leg room and hip room, trifle, trifle. Or because our standard automatic is three-speed as opposed to their two-speed, trifle and a half. Or because the Galaxy has the largest base V8 in its class, a mere trifle. No, you buy a car because you like the way it looks, and you don't worry about the trifles. But we do at Ford. See for yourself at your Ford dealers. We don't trifle with the trifles. And apparently David thought it was a great looking car to drive while you're cruising around New York City looking for someone to murder. But that's probably just a trifle as well. This act, the parking in front of a fire hydrant, plus a shift supervisor busting some patrolman's balls about being productive, it meant 
that David Berkowitz was written a parking ticket for blocking a hydrant on Bay 17th Street in Bass Beach, Brooklyn, a short distance away from the scene of the Moskowitz and Violante shooting. This, however, was the smaller of his two errors. His biggest fuck-up was letting his dumpy, stupid ass be seen by Cassilia Davis. You know you don't fucked up, right? An August 12, 1977 Daily News story gives us Cassilia's, in her own words, account. This is going to be long, and I'm doing a funny voice, so hang on. Quote, Mrs. Cassilia Davis is an Austrian-born woman who came to the United States in 1955 and became an American citizen in 1957. She speaks with heavy traces of a European accent and lives alone in a garden apartment on Bay 17th Street, a little more than a block from the spot where Stacey Moskowitz was killed last weekend. Her cooperation with police produced the lead that resulted in Wednesday night's arrest of the suspected 44 caliber killer. This is her story. It was so quiet on 17th Street. Then I saw him that night. I had been out with a friend, and we had stopped for coffee and cake, and he drove me home and double-parked outside. I asked if he wanted to come in for another cup of coffee, but he said it was late and there were no parking spaces. A policeman was putting parking tickets on some cars just then, as a matter of fact. I went inside and got my dog Snowball to take him for walkies. I went around corner over by the grass and down by the block almost to the overpass. I could see three cars parked down there, two on the left, one on the right. I walked him back, but he still do not want to go inside, so we got there, I walked him up the block as far as the fire hydrant. Whole block was deserted. When I turned around to walk back to the house, I saw a man coming towards me. He was from behind tree, walked right toward me. He gave me long, sharp look and looked in one of the courtyards between the buildings. He was so obvious. It was hot. He had a shirt and jacket on, and he walked with his right arm straight down. I could see he was holding something, but from the front I could not tell what it was. As he walked away, I could see it was something he had partly in his sleeve. He walked strange, like a cat, I thought." Unquote. Now, Cassilia didn't think anything more. Look, you don't know she didn't talk like that, okay? And Arnold Schwarzenegger was the only thing that I could think of that didn't sound way offensively Jewish. And then I thought about doing a joke about her being Australian, but then I realized that just turned into British. Never mind, I'm going back to the story now. Cassilia didn't think anything more about the strange man that night, but when she heard the news the next morning, she knew that she had encountered the monster all of New York City was afraid of and looking for. And at first... She was too scared to tell anyone, fearing the killer who saw her and her little dog a white spitz as clearly as she had seen him. And at the urging of her three friends, three days later, she called Detective Joseph Strano, who was assigned to the shooting, to tell him what she saw. The man, the officers issuing tickets, and he got her to work with a sketch artist to produce the last sketch of Berkowitz taken before his capture. Cassilia remained terrified and hiding until Berkowitz's capture was announced on the news on Wednesday after the Sunday shootings. And look, the cops totally did not cover themselves in glory running up to the actual arrest. The local detectives, as part of their routine procedures, had all the traffic tickets issued in the area that night pulled, and they ran all the plates, and they all came back to neighborhood vehicles. The reason they didn't find the Ford Galaxy in those tickets, registered to one David Berkowitz of 35 Pine Street in Yonkers, New York, is because the issuing officer didn't bother to turn in the ticket when he got off the shift the morning of the murder. He's a busy man. Too busy. 
And since her description of both the vehicle and the killer didn't match who the detectives thought they were looking for, they didn't follow up on it. Mrs. Davis had to press the detectives calling repeatedly, insisting they check the tickets because she was sure she saw a yellow Ford Galaxy get a ticket and Cecilia was the kind of woman who got what she wanted by pestering the shit out of you until you did it. Yeah, late addition to the stack had the name and address of the owner, the aforementioned David Berkowitz. A detective by the name of James Justice, great cop name, called the Yonkers police to see if they had any information on this Berkowitz dude. The dispatcher he spoke to nearly did a spit take of the name because, you know, did she have any information on David Berkowitz? Have I heard of him? Of course I've heard of him. The dispatcher's name, who, which was Wheat Carr? Uh, that's called foreshadowing. Told Justice, yeah, she was pretty sure she had so little knowledge about him because he was their neighbor and uh, she was pretty fucking sure that he had shot her goddamn dog. Sam, 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 Sam. Oh, oh, no, no, no. The dog's name wasn't Sam. No, no. The dog's name, the dog's name was Harvey. And that, that would just be a stupid name for a serial killer. The, the son of Harvey. Nobody's going to be scared of that guy. Sam was uh, Wheat's dad's name, and Harvey was his dog, ergo the son of Sam. I I I'll get into all of that in a little bit. But this information was just enough for Justice to convince some other detectives on the case that, you know, maybe it'd be a good lead for them to follow up. So they got into their car and drove up to David Yonker's address where they found the Ford Galaxy. Now, stories differ as to whether or not they saw a rifle in the back of the Ford or just plain violated the Constitution with an illegal search. Either way, they found a rifle in the back of the car, and that was enough to get them to, to, get them to a search warrant for said car. Now, around 10 p.m., while the cops were waiting for the warrant, a portly, curly-haired man matching Casilius Davis' suspect description walked up to the Ford and began to get inside. And that's when Detective John Fallotico shoved his pistol in the dude's ear and told him to get out of the car. According to Fallotico, as quoted from Wikipedia, quote, You got me. What took you so long? Fallotico replied, Now that I got you, who have I got? You know, the man said, and what the detective remembered is a soft, almost sweet voice. No, he said, I don't. You tell me. The man turned his head and said, I'm Sam. Falatico replied, You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz, you know. I am the son of Sam. Now, I can't confirm it, but maybe Falatico was so dubious because David Berkowitz was, uh... Aren't you a little fat for the show? But that could just be, be me applying my prejudices to the uh, to this situation. I don't know. Also, I've decided to do David Berkowitz as Richard Kind from here on out, just, just as a production note, a behind-the-scenes peek at, uh, at our process. After being held overnight in Yonkers jail as reports of Sam's arrest promptly leaked to the tab tabloids, Berkowitz was taken back to the headquarters of Task Force Omega. That was the name given to the police uh, task force investigating the murders, which I had not mentioned till now because it is frankly just silly. I mean, 
It's not the silliest cop task force for a serial killer I've heard. That would be the hot dog squad. He was brought in for interrogation by Detect Chief of Detectives John Keenan. And as the two men, one with a smirking, punchable face and the other, David Berkowitz, sat across the table for each other, the conversation only lasted half an hour before Berkowitz confessed. According to the New York Times and Keenan's obit, quote, As he told it, Mr. Berkowitz said, I know you. You're Detective Chief Keenan. And I said, yeah, who are you? He said, I'm the son of Sam, unquote. Not that his confession was strictly necessary since uh, the search of the car had turned up the Charter Arms 44 caliber bulldog pistol, which was quickly matched to all the murders and shootings in the case. And Berkowitz's apartment was filled with journals and diaries de detailing his longing to kill and... Uh, quote-unquote, satanic markings on the walls. Oh, and also an admission to like 1,400 fires he had started into the Bronx, but uh, as with everything that comes out of David Berkowitz's mouth to this very day, you gotta take that number and the fact that he started a fire at all with just like a huge boulder of salt. The cops had everything they needed to put David Berkowitz in the electric chair. Then they catch him and they give him the chair. And as David sat in jail pondering what was going to be probably his brief future, he began to, uh, um, I don't know, uh, explain himself. So what had happened was... In a letter to the New York Post, Berkowitz laid out his story. You see, there was this dog. I'm with you so far. But it wasn't a dog, dog. It was a demon. A 6,000-year-old demon, you see. see you with me now? That's all. That's all. And the demon inside the dog was commanding me to go out and kill. I don't want to hurt anyone, but I was just following orders from the demon. In a dog. Exactly. You, you, you've got it now. Now, this dog was Sam Carr's dog. This, his name was Harvey. And he issued these orders, and God help me, I couldn't resist the psychic commands from a dog. I had to go out and kill whenever instructed. So if you look at it from the right perspective, this is all actually Sam Carr's fault because he's the one with the dog. And I, David Berkowitz, is as much a victim as anyone else of all of this. You, you, you see? You, you, you see how that? I mean, oh, 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 and I, how could I forget? There are a bunch of other sons of Sam's out there doing Sam's bidding. Sam, who isn't the dog because the dog's name is Harvey. Sam is Sam Carr, and he's, he's the leader of a cult. That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Needless to say, no one believed a fucking word of it. It was blatantly obvious that Berkowitz was angling for an insanity defense, and a pretty thin one at that, even in the days before John Hinckley sadly failed in his mission with destiny to impress Josie Foster by shooting and missing Ronald Reagan. It's obligatory, I guess, you know. And as his trial progressed, even David finally gave up his pathetically thin scheme to avoid the chair. Quoting again from Wikipedia, quote, At a press conference in February 1979, however, Berkowitz declared that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax. Berkowitz stated in a series of meetings with a special court-appointed psychiatrist, David Abrahamson, that he had long contemplated murder to get revenge on a world that he had felt rejected and hurt him, unquote. He would eventually plead guilty to all the murders, but then... Berkowitz being Berkowitz, he went back on his bullshit. More from Wikipedia, quote, At his sentencing two weeks later, Berkowitz caused an uproar when he attempted to jump out a window of a seventh floor courtroom. Attempted might be a, a, a strong word there. 
After he was restrained, he repeatedly chanted that Stacy, his last victim, was a whore and that he would kill her again. I'd kill them all. <laughs> I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again. The court ordered another psychiatric examination before sentencing could proceed. During the evaluation, Berkowitz drew a sketch of a jailed man surrounded by numerous walls, and at the bottom he wrote, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not well. Not at all well. Nevertheless, Berkowitz was again found competent to stand trial, and on June 12, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each murder to be served consecutively, unquote. Dumb, dumb David Berkowitz has been eligible for parole since 2002. He, uh, he remains in jail. While in jail, he found God again repented of his sins again, tried to convince the parole board that he has repented his sins and repeatedly failed because the one thing David Berkowitz cannot do is actually express any remorse for his killings. He's gone back and forth so many times about the demonic bullshit that you would need a wall and about 100 yards of red string to figure out where he stands at any given moment in time. Currently, he claims that, yes, there was a demon, but God has driven him out and I'm all better now. No one believes a single fucking word he says or has ever said. Well, not exactly no one, because th there was one guy who uh, listened to Berkowitz and said, What if he really is telling the truth? At least about some of what he said, and that guy spent his whole life trying to prove this very premise that uh, could be summed up as, uh... Interesting, if true. And that guy's name was Maury Terry. Now... I know a lot of your brains just jumped to the same thing my brain did the first time I heard of Maury Terry. And they're saying, isn't that the guy that told like shitty dudes whether or not they were the father of a bastard? You are the father. Oh, of course, that's Maury Povich. Which, speaking of Maury Povich, if you knew you might be the father of a bastard and a producer from the Maury Povich show called... Why the fuck did you pick up that call? I mean, we had caller ID back in the early 2000s. And even if it slipped through and you did talk to a producer for the Maury Povich show and they're like, hey, do you know so-and-so? She says that you might be the father of her child. You just say, never heard of her. Because that's what I did when they called. No, I'm not talking about Maury Povich. I'm talking about Maury Terry. You see, Maury Terry was a copywriter for the IBM International Business Machines. I'm sorry, what now? Yep, in-house editor for IBM editing copy for, I don't know, mid-70s computer manuals. You know, like, like the one that John Tedor got. Greetings. I am a time traveler from the year 2036. I'm on my way home after getting an IBM 5100 computer system from the year 1975. <laughs> Shout out to Hysteria 51, because I stole that audio from them. For more about John Tedor, check out episode 312. Oh, oh, here he comes. He's a John Tedor. You know, like, oh, oh, here he comes, he's a man-eater. Look, the network tells me I gotta plug the bat catalog more, so that's what I'm doing. Now, Maury Terry is bored writing computer manuals for time travelers, so he starts digging around in the Son of Sam story because this was the news story at the time. And Terry was a reporter for a very small-town newspaper before his time at IBM, so it's not like he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. And after a while, he begins to put together some facts that the cops let's face it, had totally fucked up about a lot of things, maybe didn't want you to know?
the past two weeks, I've repeatedly mentioned how the cops didn't put the shootings together despite having the ballistic evidence and similar MOs. And the reason for that was because all the suspect descriptions and vehicle descriptions of suspicious cars in the areas of the shootings mentioned by witnesses didn't match up. Indeed, Berkowitz looks nothing like the witness descriptions in about half the shootings. Of course, this can be chalked up to the basic unreliability of witness testimony in general and just human nature. But what Terry discovered is that several of the descriptions and the vehicles, while not matching Berkowitz, did match members of the Carr family. You know, Harvey's humans. And he said to himself, Maybe a coincidence is not a coincidence. You all know this podcast loves a goofy-ass conspiracy theory so long as it doesn't mention, you know, the Jews or any, you know, actually Q or Anon or actually hurt anybody. And look, this is definitely a conspiracy theory. And we don't believe everything Maury Terry says is true, but uh, the bare bones of his claims, we got to admit, are pretty fucking compelling. So I'm going to try and sum them up succinctly by quoting from Steve Dunleavy, who covered the son of Sam for the New York Post. And then he wrote this in 1999. Quote, so there's this guy, Maury Terry. He's the editor for the House Magazine at IBM. Maury calls me up with his idea. It has all to do with numbers, I say. I don't know. But I take him to the chief of detectives, John Keenan, at the time, Captain John Borelli, Captain, Captain Deputy Inspector Timmy Dow. I read every letter and every wacko theory, but I, I, I work with Maury Terry. People say I'm as crazy as he is, okay? Two days after Berkowitz was arrested, August 12, 1977, Terry gives me something I can't believe. There's a conspiracy, he says. John Carr, who lived behind Berkowitz and Yonkers, literally the son of Sam. I buy Terry a beer. I don't think too much about it. A few months later, I listen closer to Terry after John Carr allegedly blows his head off in Minot, North Dakota, around the area where his, this happened. Nothing else but the buried remains of German Shepherd dogs. This is a fact. And about that time, I interview the father of John Carr. His name is Sam Carr, son of Sam. He approaches me with a gun aimed between my legs. His dog had been shot. His neighbors, a decent family, had their dog shot. And there were four bullet holes in a wall from a 44 caliber gun. Complete with the bullets that I and our photographer, Artie Pomerantz, found. Yonkers cops missed him. Terry, and now he's a television producer, and he's the first to speak to Berkowitz. And I mean, ever. Terry's book, Ultimate Evil, has been re-released as much for the Spike Lee movies as for the most unanswered questions. And, and what are they? Well, one of the identical drawings of the NYPD, which some say are better than photographs, gives seven different looks to the killers. He said, it's true. One of them had showed a long blonde head kid who looked quite a lot like John Carr who swallowed a muzzle. Others were quite different. Bottom line, Maury Terry asked Berkowitz of other people involved. He said he pulled the trigger in just two of the eight Son of Sam attacks and John Carr was the shooter for one of the hits in Queens. He told me that his car's younger brother, Michael, pulled the trigger outside the Elephant's Disco in Queens, Terry said. What had happened to Michael? He was killed in October 1979 in a mysterious car accident just as the Queens District Attorney reopened the case. Was it a cult? No question there was a highly sophisticated cult involved, Terry said. Am I the only one who believes, Terry? No. In 1979, 
Queens DA John St. Tucci reopened the case and announced Berkowitz did not act alone. I believe that David Berkowitz did not act alone. He said that others did cooperate, aid, and abet him in the commission of the crimes. In the epilogue of his updated book, Terry reports that as recently as 1998, Yonkers cops were looking at the story again. They determined there was a conspiracy that included more persons, that included David Berkowitz. Santucci, a respected man, said this years ago, says Terry. Berkowitz says others were involved, and he had no hope of getting out of jail. I talk to Berkowitz all the time. He should be in jail, but so should a lot of other people, unquote. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what Terry wrote about in his book in 1987, The Ultimate Evil, detailing his decade-long investigation of the son of Sam. It's a hard read, I admit, but there's also a Netflix documentary, The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness, that's much easier, and it's a critical examination of Terry's claims. Maury Terry provided enough compelling evidence that the Queen's DA did reopen the investigation and came to the conclusion that there was at least two shooters based on witness testimony. Furthermore, a yellow Volkswagen bug was associated with at least two of the shootings, and none other than John Carr had just such a vehicle. John Carr, who had killed himself in Minot, North Dakota, some months after Berkowitz's arrest, which, if you have ever been to Minot, you can kind of understand. The other brother, Michael Carr, had died in an automobile, automobile crash that was ruled a DUI. However, Michael Carr, allergic to alcohol, couldn't drink it. And the suspect description of a tall blonde man fit John Carr closely, though no witnesses were able to conclusively say that they saw John Carr at the scene. All in all, Terry did a lot of investigative legwork that asked some good questions, made some good points, and generally annoyed the shit out of the cops who investigated the case, but he could never prove anything. Not, not that it mattered. The case was closed. Berkowitz confessed. He was in jail for the rest of his life. So the general attitude towards Maury Terry was that he was, it was a crank and kind of an asshole. And that might have been enough for some people. I personally believe that the cars were probably involved in one way or another, and a lot of other investigators do as well, but the problem was Maury Terry couldn't stop with that because Maury Terry was doing a lot of this investigation in the mid-1980s, and there was this little thing going on at the time that definitely colored his perception. Could it be... Yeah, it was indeed Satan. Maury Terry got caught right up in the old satanic panic and began looking for devil worshippers under every tree and bush. And since Berkowitz had already claimed the devil made him do it, Maury Terry grabbed that up and ran with it. He walked through parks and yonkers looking for sa satanic markings, which of course he found, even though what he found was just some graffiti that looked to him to be satanic. He made connections with other murders around the country that were very tenuous at the time and have since been totally debunked. And, and then he finally got to talk to Berkowitz in jail. Through all of this, I haven't really said much about David Berkowitz and well, I mean, I've said a lot, and it hasn't been, uh... It's not a very flattering portrait, I'm afraid. This is because David Berkowitz is not just a cold-blooded murderer, but it's also because he's a sniveling little bullshit artist who will say anything he thinks people want to hear while he's talking to them and hopes that they will somehow be nice to him. He didn't kill because a dog told him to. He killed because women thought he thought women didn't like them, which, to be fair, they didn't, and for very good reasons. 
like, you know, he was a sniveling little bullshit artist. Anyone who's ever watched Berkowitz speak, and I have, should know instantly that this man is lying to you every time his lips move. Maury Terry, however, was obsessed with his big story and chose to believe Berkowitz because Berkowitz was saying exactly what Maury Terry wanted to hear. Shannon Carlin wrote on Refinery29 in 2021, quote, Terry was hell-bent on breaking open the story that there were multiple sons of Sam. But yeah, the trouble getting the police to take him seriously. He did himself no favors by appearing on French talk shows in hopes of getting his theories out there. Many of these shows seem more interested in stroking fear than to to boost ratings than to get the truth, which hurt his credibility. In 1993, after years of trying to talk about Berkowitz, he was able finally finally able to secure a first-person interview with him. In it, Berkowitz revealed that he had been a member of a cult. I took an oath, he said. A little blood pack. Berkowitz changed the story over the years in terms of whether or not he was a member of a cult, but in 2020, he was back to saying that he was. In that same interview, he also revealed that he did not commit all of the Son of Sam murders. I was at all of them, but I didn't pull the trigger at all of them. In Terry's mind, this was a huge break in the case, but some felt his questions were leading. Others weren't willing to believe the words of a convicted murderer. Was Berkowitz just telling his eager interviewer what he wanted to hear? He was. In the end, the interview became tabloid fodder instead of an important break in the story. Terry got a second chance to interview Berkowitz in 1997 and finally, quote, find peace, unquote. Well, investigative journalist, investigative journalist Sarah Wallace says that Terry's information was solid. She admits there was some suggestive interviewing going on in that sit down. I remember thinking Berkowitz is not telling the truth, she says in Sons of Sam. I just didn't buy the other theories. The interview was Terry's way of gaining journalistic acceptance when he didn't. He fell deeper into the rabbit hole. He became so obsessed with proving there was a larger conspiracy at play that he started to believe things that were untrue. He found connections where there weren't any, creating a web of theories that began to spin out of control. The case took a toll on him. He drank. He smoked heavily up until his death in 2015 at the age of 69, unquote. Nice. In the end, Maury Terry was never able to prove any to anyone other than Maury Terry his theory of the case, which is sad because parts of it are plausible. I might even say probable that Berkowitz didn't act entirely alone. The connections to the Carr family in this case have never been thoroughly explored outside of Maury Terry and haven't been explained by anyone else besides him. And yes, it's entirely possible there was a small C cult. The names like Church of the Final Process are thrown around. I don't even know that there's anything to that, but those are the names that are thrown around. But yes, maybe there was some goofy shit with people talking about spooky stuff in the woods that somehow turned into murder, but it wasn't part of some great satanic conspiracy because Satan has standards and would never stoop to associating with a loser like David Berkowitz. And David Berkowitz will spend the rest of his life in jail being a hero to the kind of idiots who believe that he's found redemption in Christ, who, honestly, if if Jesus was real, (laughs) would not have anything to do with David Berkowitz because Jesus has standards and would never stoop to be associated with a loser like David Berkowitz. The Summer of Sam 
was hardly New York City's last serial killer. A few years later, Joel Rifkin would start a killing spree that surpassed Berkowitz. That didn't grab the headlines because Rifkin was killing sex workers and then, as in now, no one gives a shit about them. And in these modern times, I don't see how there could ever be another Summer of Sam with some new killer, not just because serial killers do their killing all at once with an AR-15 in an elementary school, but also because we don't consume media like we did in 76, 77. There are no Jimmy Breslins and sons and any letters that a new son of Sam wrote. Everyone on the left would be like, see, he said he's a women hater. And everyone on the right would be like, hell yeah, buddy, Q says kill more of them libs. But for better or worse, there'll never be another summer of Sam because we're scared of different things now. Like some pudgy dipshit shooting in a car window. That's just like a Tuesday night in New York City here at the end of America. And I personally miss the old days when a mystery murder killed people randomly in the night because girls didn't like them instead of walking into a fucking elementary school with a legally purchased AR-15 and killing a bunch of kids because girls didn't like you. These pathetic motherfuckers. Yeah, girls didn't like me either. Until closing time came along. Do what I did. Learn to tough it out for the night, you sad sack sons of bitches. Shooting up a school because you can't fucking hang on to last call. Have you ever experienced turbulence on a flight and wondered why? And you can see all the terrain around you. Uh, you've got no issue with visibility or anything? No, everything's peachy. Maybe you've sat on the tarmac for hours wondering why your plane isn't moving. Well, we're outside here. They're saying the ramp is closed. They won't let us park because of uh, Air Force One. Listen in on the conversations between pilots and air traffic controllers on the Air Traffic Out of Control podcast. Cybersecurity declaring an emergency. There's smoke in the cabin. I need to make a landing right now on 31 left. We have the most interesting, wild, and funny ATC recordings you will ever hear. Check out Air Traffic Out of Control wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallerati, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. And that is it for our show this week and for our series, The Summer of the 70s of July. I really hope you've enjoyed this platform shoot bell-bottom jeans walk through the worst decade of my hometown, even if you aren't from New York City. I love doing these theme shows. For one, it's a lot easier to do the research, and two, I don't have to think about what fucking topic I'm going to talk about for the next week. But now we're back on our bullshit, so uh, next week... We're going to be telling you about the war to end all wars. VHS versus Betamax. So much blood. So much pain. Speaking of outdated technology, no one gives a shit about rate and review this show so others can find us, take a listen to us, and not give a shit about us either. If you like the show for some reason and you want to kick us a dollar, head on over to patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing or else he will be forced to issue a warning ticket because he really has no enforcement authority for non-compliant podcast listening. And so for me, Dave, something's happening. Don't speak too soon. I told the boss off and made my move Bledsoe. Producer, I'm not uncomfortable feeling weird. 
lonely, leered, options disappeared, but I know what to do. Gavin and all the fictional sons of Sam's on this show, we want to see King for a Day, Son of Sam on the Shining Path, The Clouded Mind, The Couple Killer, Running Out of Time. And we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on Facebook as what the hell podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. I was going to say VHS over beta.